This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. This is Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we're wrapping up our discussion of what appears to be the world's favorite American expressionistic play, Our Town. After we finish our discussion on the play itself, we also have a little bit of a special feature for those that might not be familiar with the hymn featured in this play four times. Blessed be the tie that binds. It's a very, very old traditional hymn used in a lot of various cultural contexts, and it's even just beyond just religious. Well, that's true. When I was in college, our sorority at the end of each meeting would clasp our hands. We would sing the song, well, at least like the verse that everybody knows. I hope I didn't just reveal a sorority secret. (laughs) If you don't know the song, though, it's what we've been playing at the beginning of every episode that he tried to get... It make it sound authentically old. <laughs> mm, so I guess the sorority Illuminati will be acting. I know, uh, for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, lots of organizations use it, uh, not just college sororities or churches, but uh, even if you've never heard the song from the early days of church or, or college, it's worth looking at. I mean, for Wilder, uh, he was raised in a Christian home and was familiar to some degree with both theology and liturgical practices, but he himself was not a very religious man, at least not outwardly so. I mean, because of his uh, conflicted relationship with his father, along with his secrecy about his sexual orientation, it's understandable that issues of faith were not something that he discussed publicly. And the religious aspect of this hymn is really not the purpose of its inclusion in the play at all. In fact, the lyrics might even be used a bit ironically, or at least paradoxically, I mean, him asking the question, what actually is the tie that binds us? And so without 
any more long introductions because I know I did that in the first episode, then I did it in the second episode about the theater and then about Wilder. I'm ready now to head on over to Grover's Corner and look at the particulars of this play because, as we know, it's in the particulars that we see universal archetypes and, in this case, the ideas that Wilder thinks are so obvious a mob could understand them. A mob. The mob. Those are his words. Yes. In other words, a throng of idiots. Uh, <laughs> that's about what we are. <laughs> well, by way of review, um, as you recall, in the first act, we see a day in the life of Grover's Corner. And for the most part, life is demonstrably unremarkable in the northern province of North America. And of course, he deliberately uses the wrong word for the way the United States is organized here. I mean, it's obvious uh, in the name of our country itself, that we don't have provinces, which the states, the United States, interesting thing that he would throw in there. Well, I think, you know, using the word provinces reminds us that this is a generic word. It's not just about this particular place, and it's as generic as he could possibly try to make it. And he's recounting generic anecdotes that are culturally specific to the turn of the century in this little corner of globally a planet earth so he's wanting us to look down this little speck and this little province of earth that's more specific than just you know a country well and i would like to point out that the word province leads us to the word provincialism yeah which could apply in this yeah in these in this provincial circumstance yes uh well the the anecdotes as you call them really just come from the lives of two families, the Webbs and the Gibbs. And there are two families that live next door to each other, and they appear to be as typical as anyone could ever find in this part of the country in, in this time period. And actually very similar to each other in their religion, the way they're raising their families, their education, and even their hobbies. I mean, they're interested in exactly the most basic things anyone could ever be interested in in their cultural context. Provincial. There you go. They're as provincial as anyone ever could be. I mean, I was struck immediately with Mrs. Gibbs wanting to go to Paris because she wanted to go somewhere where they didn't speak English and didn't even want to. Something that she found amazing. Uh, she considers herself an outlier for having such a thought, and so does her neighbor. And, of course, her husband is dead set against it to the point by Act 3 we learned that she never went, even though she's kind of frowning about it after her death. And the money that he, she left her, well, the money that they could have used for their trip, she called it her legacy was used for something different. And we're seeing the attitudes, really, uh, that are pretty typical for that time period. You know, the class structure, the family structure, all these things are not meant to look outstanding in any kind of way. And although, you know, we can look back, I can look back with my little feminist lens and find something to criticize. It's not really the purpose and the point to even to do that. In fact, I think it would be a bit of a distraction to try to do that. No one here is being exposed you know, expressed as being particularly unhappy, not even her, about the way she's living her life. Right. And because this is about the process of being alive more than it is the process of accomplishment and creating right. all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and of course, the children are exactly the same. I mean, Emily is apparently a very, very smart girl, but we know that she's not going to do anything in particular with her academic abilities, uh, nor does it even occur to her that she could. Her husband has the means and the opportunity to go to college, but seems okay with just going back to Grover's Corner to farm and 
Again, many modern readers would feel a little check in their spirit hearing about that. <laughs> yes, but, we but all we go are, to college, go to college. <laughs> especially this day and time. Um, but uh, this is their world, not yours. I know. And like I said, modern women would flinch at Emily's choices, but somehow it's okay to let her be her. She's not an unsettled person. She doesn't care to be a social reformer. And we have to remember this is not a political play. We don't Thank have goodness. to be. We don't have to be politically charged all the time. These are the kinds of thoughts that I don't know modern audiences. I think I never really have. I, I don't know that I'm the outlier. Lots of us do, and maybe it expresses more about us and our world than it really does about the women or the people in the time. That's arguable, I know, but it really isn't the point. In fact, it's completely beside the point. And that's kind of where uh, we need to land if we're going to really enjoy Act 3. Yes, and Act 3 is important, as we're going to find <laughs> out. All right? So, I mean, I agree with you. From a social science perspective, it's not just the families and their lives in Grover's Corner that are downplayed. I mean, even the social problems of the community are generic and downplayed. Uh, from the poverty of the underclass to their one isolated town <laughs> drunk. I know. Uh, in the beginning of the play, I, I feel kind of tempted to view what Wilder is doing as kind of the sentimental expression of a whisper. I mean, well, let me just say a wistful remembrance of the good old days, kind of like Little House on the Prairie, that kind of thing. <laughs> the days gone by before social problems of large urban settings became a real concern for average people. There's this cute little line. It's not in the beginning of the play, but it talks about how people are starting to lock their doors. And, you know, this is a ridiculous thing from from their perspective, and it's kind of expressed as that. But bottom line, this was my entire argument last episode. Uh, episode that we can't limit our interpretation to those kind of things. I think that misses the context, the larger context of the play, which really, to me, doesn't really come into focus until you get now to the end. Hmm. Well, uh, that, of course, is where the focus was in our second episode, as we featured, although some parts of Act 1, again, mostly Act 2, what Wilder calls love and marriage. And of course, I definitely agree with you that there was an expanded discussion, especially on the part of the stage manager about some metaphysical ideas about man wanting to live and die in community and the nature of true love and companionship. I mean, I think it's safe to say this act is deliberately, perhaps especially, sentimental. I thought so too. <laughs> we have Sweet. a couple we have a couple getting married and then we take a look back at how they first decided they were in love. It's expressly innocent, far more innocent than real life. It's sweet. I mean, it's an idealized remembrance that it seems designed to take everyone back to that moment in their adolescence when they woke up to this concept called love. I find it touching. The act starts with what the stage manager calls an uninteresting wedding. And of course, he plays the role of the minister and it kind of really is uninteresting. Then he whips us back in time to when George and Emily kind of talk about their relationship in that awkward way couples tend to do, especially in their youth. Uh, it's the far more interesting, I think, kind of anecdote in uh, the whole play. He wants to create an encounter of innocent awkwardness, shyness, butterflies in the stomach, boys having to be brave, girls trying to be coy. I know it's culturally contextual, but Hopefully there's something in there that kind of lives eternal. It would be sad if it didn't. And he draws us back to that same idea of Keats on the urn, the moment right 
before the boy gets the girl, the excitement there, the tension. It's relatable, even if you don't know what a phosphate drink is. Oh, are we going back to that again? <laughs> I mean, I really am enchanted with the phosphates. Well, we're going to have to get you one, it sounds like. Uh, well, you you also made the case that, that this, again, was Wilder pointing out the universality of the cycles of life in the human experience. I mean, we highlighted especially his use of common archetypes and perhaps personal symbols, things like the moon and the milk and the rain. I mean, all these things point to life as a cycle and love being a part of that cycle, but love not as two isolated characters, but love as we live it collectively, even now, something we share in common in spite of cultural differences. So the emotions more than the specific events expressed on the stage was what he was counting on uh, for the audience as a collective being able to re-collective collectively. <laughs> Did I say that word enough? I think we're supposed to understand that we all have these feelings. Is, have we emphasized the word collective enough? Uh, well, you know, during the wedding ceremony, it's such an untraditional or a non-traditional way to look at a wedding because we don't see the ceremony. It's not featured at all. We're bombarded with these parallel discussions, and there's a bunch of them. There's George and Mr. Webb and Emily, and there's dialogue that would actually never actually happen. It's kind of like what you would or could say if someone could talk during this experience, how you're feeling about everything mm-hmm. more than what people are actually seeing. There was a little bit of stream of consciousness oh, going yeah. on between, the, especially the two friends. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so anyway, true. And, and having given a daughter away in marriage, obviously you would never say out loud in the wedding ceremony, I'm giving away my daughter, George. Do you think you can take care of her? <laughs> well, and what he says back and what Emily says, I guess what we were all saying by walking down the aisle, George says, Mr. Webb, I want to. I want to try. <laughs> Not encouraging. <laughs> I know. But of course, that's how you would feel. I mean, I don't know. I've never been a boy walking down an aisle, but it seems like you should at least feel that way. Yeah. And Emily, he's getting, well, let me finish reading the whole line. Mr. Webb, I want to. I want to try. Emily, I'm going to do my best. I love you, Emily. I need you. It's just sweet. And Emily's going to respond. Well, if you love me, help me. All I want is someone to love me. To which he responds, I will, Emily. Emily, I'll try. The idea being that's what you're supposed to get out of any wedding ceremony. Mm. Those are what they're, that's what people are saying in their vows, even though they're never saying something quite that simplistic. And then she says the last words she'll ever say as a living person. And I mean forever. Do you hear Forever and ever. There's a bit of irony. Aww. <laughs> yes, and that whole exchange happens apparently before Emily even walks down the aisle. And before Mrs. Soames, the philosopher, <laughs> gives her analysis of the perfectly lovely wedding, the loveliest wedding she ever saw, how she's crying, how she loves seeing young people happy, how she's sure they'll be happy, how happiness is the greatest thing, and she goes on and then boom. We have to have our intermission. <laughs> <laughs> the audience goes for an intermission, and uh, although no more references to smoking, and while they're doing that, the stagehands come out and they rearrange the stage. And that's when you remember this is part of a play because there's no curtain. So you watch, like it's part of the play. The audience is supposed to watch them set up 10 or 12 
what he calls ordinary chairs in three rows on the right side of the stage. Yes, and then the actors file in. Uh, on the first row is Mrs. Gibbs, Simon Stinson, the drunk choir director, and an empty chair. Mrs. Soames, among others, on row two, and Wally Webb, Emily's baby brothers, on the third row. The, the word Wilder uses to describe the tone they are to convey is, I love this word, lugubrious. <laughs> what does lugubrious mean? I know. It just, lugubrious means exactly what it should mean. Sad and dismal. Mm. More sad, more di- lugubrious. That's the word. This time, when the stage manager talks, though, he puts us in context of time immediately by telling us not just the year, it's 1913, but also how long it's been since Act Two. He describes the social changes over time a bit negatively, honestly, but not too terribly tragic. He also describes for us a beautiful landscape where we're looking for miles across a rural setting full of clouds and mountains and trees. But then he eventually, and remember, we can't see this. This is all being constructed in our minds. Then he points out that we are in a cemetery. It's an old cemetery, he says, dating back to the 1600s. Then he makes this statement before he introduces us to the new part of the cemetery where our characters are hanging out. He says this, Wherever you come near the human race, There's layers and layers of foolishness because they're still trying to create hierarchies in the cemetery after death. And it's just layers and (laughs) humanity in and of itself is just we're funny like that. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting when he talks about his perspective of death as laid out in our town. He really does talk about that detachment from all the foolishness, the layers and layers of web here. Uh, You know, some of the foolishness he's referring to is silly. Uh, He's talking about people tracing their ancestors to prove to themselves that they're perhaps better than other people because of whatever DNA they may or may not have. Uh, But mostly it's kind of tragic. I mean, boys dying in the Civil War, and we all know how tragic that conflict was. And then he shows us our dead characters and he talks about them. And I want to point out a subtlety thing that's kind of interesting In Act 2, the stage manager is playing the role of a minister. So he's we've last seen him preaching in the church. In Act 3, to me, he hasn't taken off this banner of being a minister. He seems to still be playing the minister. But now we're playing a role, too. We're the congregation. He's talking to us. He's talking in the first person plural. And he's talking about these kind of metaphysical things. He says this about people dying and he's talking about eternity this is preaching i let's listen gary wait for us the monologue and, and see what you think oh it's very insightful um here we go we all know how it is and then time and sunny days and rainy days and snow we're all glad they're in a beautiful place and we're coming up here ourselves when our fit's over Now, there are some things we all know, but we don't take them out and look at them very often. We all know that something is eternal, and it ain't houses, and it ain't names, and it ain't earth, and it ain't even the stars. Everybody knows in their bones that something is eternal, and that something has to do with human beings. All the greatest people ever lived have been telling us that for 5,000 years And yet, you'd be surprised how people are always losing hold of it. 
There's something way down deep that's eternal about every human being. Huh. What do you think about that? Well, again, we, we see a universality of human experience converging. And from a theological perspective, it's pretty interesting. We know uh, that he lived in China and then back in the West. And those two cultural landscapes are very different in regard to religious thought. I'd say there's not much they agree on at all. Uh, but he did find one thing both Eastern and Western religions agree on. There is eternity written on our hearts. And Wilder is not a religious apologist, and I don't think he's trying to make any kind of religious doctrinal statement at all. I mean, it's just an observation and perhaps something he's picked up over the years. Yeah, I don't think it's supposed to be theologically doctrinal either, but he does seem to be redefining what he means for us to think about when it comes to what he means by time. It's like he wants to talk again about time, but this time he wants us to discuss time in a different way. Instead of seeing time as cyclical, like we've been seeing, you know, the cycles of life and the other two acts, now we're looking at it linearly because every geometry will tell you, and I will tell you, I was a not awesome geometry student, <laughs> and I gleaned little. But one of the things that I gleaned, thanks to my geometry classes, is that lines are infinite. They don't end. And perhaps he's saying life is like that. It's long, but the lifespan on Earth isn't long. It's just a minuscule moment of what is mystical, mysterious, unknowable, not really sad, even in death here, all, Wilder seems to be celebrating life. Well, just look at the characters. Uh, we can see that life isn't fair. The Webbs have lost both of their children. Uh, Mr. Gibbs has lost his wife. Simon killed himself. None of these people died of natural causes. And we find this out as two strangers come and talk. And by the way, in case you're wondering, there are 22 characters in this play, which is... <laughs> A real random assortment. I know, in this small little short play. <laughs> but I want to point out, we have a second horse we're going to beat to death. First uh -oh. of all was collective. <laughs> the second horse we're going to beat to death is time. time. Those two words are very important to understanding the play. I, I agree, and I think the critics have agreed. You know, There's an Italian writer and literary critic, his name is Elio Vittorini, and he says that what Wilder is saying, and I'm going to quote him, well, an English translation of him. One should live as if one had already passed through death and already knew the enormous importance in his fleetingness of life and had living the stoic wisdom that perhaps the dead have before the spectacle of the living. So that's kind of a big thought. That but is a big thought. <laughs> but it's precisely at this point in the play where the audience is taken to that realization because here we have all these dead people on one side and they're absolutely juxtaposed literally physically against living people on the other side and we're meant to look at these stark differences. And they, they stand out. I mean, for one thing, all of the living people are full of emotions and the dead ones are not. Uh, the live ones are under umbrellas and it's raining and the dead are unaffected, obviously, by any of this. Yes, and rain is an archetype for death as well as life, just saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and what seems to be affecting their emotions? I mean, is it not that the dead don't have them? Emily's going to have a lot of emotions here in a second. 
but they clearly have different perspectives on what is happening. I mean, they have a different understanding of time. And Wilder takes us back to that overarching motif. Well, he does. And you have to even notice that the stage directions say that Emily is not to be dressed as a grown woman anymore, but she's dressed as a little girl, even though she is a grown woman, kind of pointing out, you know, life is looking quite different at this point. And she sits down and says, it seems like a thousands and thousands of years since she had died. So time is kind of qualitative, almost. It's patient. It's more positive waiting. Whereas time for living people, for us, it's restless. It's hasty. They come, they go. That's what we do. (laughs) Well, whatever the perspective is, uh, Emily doesn't have it yet. When she arrives at the cemetery, I mean, she rattles on and on about everything that's going on. They have a successful business. They have a modern invention that's going to make them even more successful. They own a Ford, a car that was really fancy (laughs) for the time period. Her son is spending the day with the wife of one of the dead men in the cemetery. And she looks at Mr. Gibbs as he comes to the cemetery to leave flowers for his dead wife. And she says something about people that we haven't heard yet. She says this, I never realized how troubled they are, how in the dark live persons are. Look at him. I loved him so from morning till night. That's all they are, troubled. And of course, the dead people are just kind of blowing off her in general and her comments. And Emily wants to go back to Earth to live again. And everyone says, don't do it. Don't do it. And we have this wonderful scene where she does go back and she's going to relive her 12th birthday. And it appears whatever she has learned about time or at least what she's learning in this little incident about time, is what we're supposed to be learning, too. And this is the key little anecdote that really is supposed to unlock the play for us. When asked about what the play means, and this is true, well, Wilder has been asked, what does this play mean? And he says this, Our town is not offered as a picture of life in a New Hampshire village or a speculation about the conditions of life after death. That element I merely took from Dante's Purgatory. In other words, I just borrowed from whatever from somebody <laughs> what somebody said about what life after death was. But it is an attempt to find a value above all price for the smallest events in our daily lives. Well, of course, that's exactly what happens when Emily goes back. I mean, she sees Howie Newsom, the milkman. She sees Constable Warren, uh, a man that she identifies as being dead. She sees her dad and her mom, and her mom was doing all the normal things moms do all over the world, getting kids up for school, things like that. And it's her birthday. It's her 12th birthday. uh, Of course, many of the emotions she has is the same emotions we have when we watch old videos of ourselves. True. (laughs) She notices things like how young they all look. She wants to notice the details of the environment. I mean, she notices details she's forgotten, like George bringing over a birthday gift well before that was even a thing. And then she notices that no one else in the room is noticing the things she's noticing. Her mother's in a hurry. They're all just living. And she says these lines, I didn't realize. So all that was going on and we never noticed. Take me back up the hill to my grave. But first, wait. One more look. Goodbye. Goodbye, world. Goodbye, Grover's Corner. Mama and Papa. Goodbye to ticking clocks. or really clocks ticking. And Mama's sunflowers. And food and coffee. And new iron dresses. And hot baths. And sleeping. And waking up. 
Oh, Earth, you're too wonderful for anybody to realize you. Then she looks toward the stage manager and asks abruptly through her tears, Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? Every, every minute? And of course he says no. (laughs) Of course, even the dead don't agree on what life means. I mean, Simon Stimson's attitude hasn't changed since his death. (laughs) His comment. The optimist. (laughs) Yes. He said, yes, now you know. Now you know. That's what it was to be alive. To move about in a cloud of ignorance to go up and down trampling on the feelings of those of, of those about you, to spend and waste time as though you had a million years, to be always at the mercy of one self-centered passion or another. Now you know, that's the happy existence you wanted to go back to. Ignorance and blindness. <laughs> Not an endorsement. Well, he hasn't improved in his character over the years. <laughs> and Mrs. Gibbs confesses at him. She says... Simon Simpson, that ain't the whole truth, and you know it. Emily, look at that star. And they're all looking up at the stars, by the way, all the dead people in the cemetery. And we're going to end with this most basic of all archetypes, because they're all going to be looking up. And she says, look up at the star. What does that, what's that about, Gary? What can we, what kind of significance do we have in our hearts that we collectively know about stars? Well, who do we always have to go to when we talk about collective... Anything? Yes. Dr. Young. Carl Young. <laughs> uh, you know, for Young, the star was the most basic of the archetypes, and it represents yourself. And, of course, the sky was the collective unconscious. Every man or woman is a star, and we don't mean that in a, you know, positive... Hollywood. <laughs> yes. And we don't mean it in the positive self-esteem mode. He's just saying every man or woman is a star. And so what we do as a collective, the group mind, what are we supposed to get from all this? Obviously, since we have to know, we don't even know cognitively what archetypes are. It's got to be very intuitive. And this act is intuitive. I always cry at the end of our town, which is ridiculous because... It's not all that sad. And you've seen it many times. Yeah, I've seen it a bunch. <laughs> uh, and I don't think you're really feeling sad for Emily. I mean, she's not really a sad character. You're right. I don't even think she's the protagonist of the play. Like, from a literary sense, I don't think you, you can make that case. The, the protagonist is the town. This is a story about the town, not any one single individual. Well, the, then, of course, there is all the discussion about time, what we are to make of it. And it's very cliche to say time flies. It's also very cliche to say, appreciate every moment. You don't know if it will be your last or, or even appreciate the small things in life. Very true. Uh, It's not a cliche yet. It is something close to that, something along those lines. And I really think it's something uh, you learn later on in life, even if you're not a saint or a poet, this idea of living a moment. Now, that is a cliche. And this is, again, where I think Wilder picks up on something that he's noticed, not as a, a cliche, but as an observation, as a trend from traveling the world and seeing different ways that people are conducting their lives, not just cross-culturally, but also cross-classes, the way even if you're rich or poor, that kind of thing. And he's created a story in a very fairly egalitarian, center-of-the-road kind of setting. 
about what he means when he says living in the moment. And usually, you know, you have the cliche, but then you have the deeper idea that makes something great. Uh, And as I've grown up, I've understood that, you know, when something good happens, of course you shouldn't race through it. I remember the first, well, the second, the third time I went to the Sistine Chapel. I, I had always had this problem. You go to the Sistine Chapel, it's crowded, it's full of tourists, and you find yourself kind of racing through. But the last time I was there, when we were there, we did it differently. We slowed down, we sat down, and we took it all in. So I think there is an essence of what she's saying to do just that. But that's only one part of it. That's not even uh, the biggest part of it. Because if that would have been the point of his play, he would have had a big moment, a big occasion, and he would have gotten his characters to appreciate it like having Emily maybe go back and revisit her wedding or the birth of her child, something that she probably rushed through, but now she should have appreciated it much deeper. So that's not the point because he doesn't want her to go back and relive a big moment that she should have appreciated more fully. He sends her back to live an unimportant moment. So living the moment has to be about something besides just appreciating a good time or savoring a good moment. And so here's my thought on what I think he's trying to say. I think he's saying that people go through life thinking that success, however you define success, will bring you happiness. And we want happiness. Mrs. Soames says that, and she's right. Of course we do. But Wilder is going to make the argument that what happiness consists of is not achieving your idea of greatness. Greatness, whatever you think that is, can give you something, but it can't give you happiness. Perhaps it can bring you power, which is its own toxin. But power is 100% absent from this play. It has been completely removed from the discussion. There's nothing going on powerful about that. Happiness, success, power do not correlate in Wilder's calculus in any way. They don't have anything to do with each other. So therefore, unhappiness is not something that you're stuck with because you don't achieve greatness or success or or power in your own mind. Happiness is and has always been an ordinary existence. And that's why these characters look at the stars and the moon. It's why there is an emphasis on on this play, on stopping and settling down. Here's a glimpse into our world, and it's what we do when, you know, we sit in chairs in the evening and sip a drink and talk about the day. It's finding peace, and that's going to be what he says the definition of happiness is, finding those still moments. I agree with that completely, and I think Wilder is an interesting person to be making a statement like this. Uh, This is a man who actually achieved fame. He had financial success. He had career success. He had lots to be proud of when it comes to just the accomplishments alone, yet his argument is that's not where to find happiness. That's not where he finds value, to use his words. He says the value of life itself, and he makes a claim that value in life is far beyond material. It's in the breathing and the quiet and the peace of ordinary moments. That's a pretty bold claim. (laughs) And the success of this play seems to indicate to me that in our collective heart of hearts, we somehow agree with him. And maybe we know that's what it is. And it's why if you sit with 
in a theater with somebody next to you, even if you're not of the same social class or you don't know anything about them at all, that can still be the tie that binds our hearts. Hence the song, the song that he featured four times in this play, the song that we used in the introduction, if you haven't ever heard it before. It's a very, very old British hymn that churches have been singing for over 200 years. So as we transition out and leave Grover's Corner, I think it would be nice if we talked a little bit about the very interesting origin of this play. Oh, sure. Gary, can you tell us the story behind the hymn, the man who wrote it, and why he wrote it? Yes, he's an Englishman named John Fawcett, and he had been the uh, pastor of a small Baptist church in Waynesgate in Yorkshire, and he had been there for many years serving the congregation, and he uh, received a call to go to a much larger Baptist church in London. He accepted the call. The day that he and his wife were getting ready to, to pack up and move and leave, they were sitting with all their material possessions and um I assume this was going to involve a big pay raise and promotion and all the things that we want in life. Well, the 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 congregants came out and just there was a they all reminisced about all the great wonderful memories and times they'd had together and how much that uh, Fawcett uh, had meant to them as their pastor. And finally, his wife breaks down and says, "I cannot bear to leave. How can we go?" And he said, "I have the same feelings." And they ordered them in to unload the wagons. And he ends up staying at this tiny church pretty much the rest of his life. And so then he writes the song, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. So there you go. I think Wilder would not go so far as the writer of the hymn goes to suggest what the tie is that binds humans together. But he definitely appreciates that it is one, and it lies somewhere in the special vortex of time, community, and eternity. The hymn has more to it, but those are the lines that he pulls for the play, and so those are kind of the only lines that we really want to feature for what uh, we're doing. But you're welcome to to look it up and listen to the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> And it is in a fellowship of kindred minds, in other words, in the community of a group mind of anyone watching a play, that we are to enjoy this wonderfully simple, yet not simple, lesson on slowing down. <laughs> it's sweet. It is, and people love it, and it's a favorite. Thanks for being with us as we've walked through Thornton Wilder's Our Town. Uh, tell your friends about the podcast. Encourage them to listen. Check us out on our Facebook page, on our Instagram page, and check us out on howtolovelitpodcast.com. We have things waiting there for you. Thanks. Peace out. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 